We're so thankful you've chosen to tune in on whatever platform you're using, whether Podbean or through Facebook or iTunes. Whatever way you're listening, I just want to say thank you for joining in. We'd love to hear from you, so drop a comment to us or email us at thegrove267 at gmail.com. If you want to know more about us as a ministry, go to hisgrove.com, or you can also check us out on Facebook at Deeply Rooted Ministries in Canton, Texas. We believe God wants to use these messages to spread His truth to a needy world, but primarily a needy church, which needs the truth of the Word to resurrect among us so that Heaven's army will be equipped to win souls and train them up in the Lord. Jesus said if we know the truth, it will set us free. So help us to bring freedom to people's lives by sharing these messages in any way you can. Now to our podcast. Well, welcome, listeners. We have had our fair share of some doozy passages over the last roughly three or four chapters. In fact, pretty much most all of Romans has been just kind of a weighty, uh, you know, Oftentimes it can be a confusing book to go through and then hopefully the Lord's kind of brought us through to a point um, in this chapter in verse 12 where it's going to get into more practical, applicatory type things for us as the body of Christ. And the epicenter of those things is going to be in chapter 12. Chapter 12, um, you know, in my Bible... The concepts, you know, starting in verse 9 through the rest of the chapter even has a subtitle, which were added by men. But this is, this is how man kind of sees this passage. The marks of the true Christian, or I'll say, the marks of true Christianity. This is what it looks like to be a Christ follower. And so Paul is now kind of navigating away from the promises of God, the plan of God uh, about bringing forth Jesus Christ and the blessings that God was going to bring forth in Christ for both the Jews and the Gentiles who are no longer under the law, who have been redeemed from being under the law. And this has kind of been his premise all throughout. So if this is your first time, you know, welcome. But I'm going to tell you, there's going to be some things we might talk about that I've already hit really hard and heavy over the last 11 chapters. Um, one of those concepts being something I want to address even just right now before we get into Romans 12. As I've been observant over the last you know, week, two, three weeks, just in, in my everyday life and circle and things going on, and as I've been reading through the text and I've been listening to stuff and reading stuff and hearing stuff and um, watching Here's one of the things that I think, and I've touched on it briefly, but here's one of the things that I think is one of the worst things of our generation today that's being propagated in the church by the church. We focus so much on the promises and the blessings and the gifts of God that we, we almost mitigate and, and deny any responsibility that we have within that. And this is going to come into play here in just a second when we get into the very first verse. And this is why I'm bringing this up even now. You know, it's the, for me, the theme of kind of the last several chapters was the, uh, that people have, in the way that it's viewed today, let me say that, in the way that many people view these chapters is that it's, we want the blessings of God without the responsibilities. We want the promises of God without the conditions. We, we want the things that God is saying, I'm going to give you gifts, and I'm going to give you these things, but we want them without any terms attached to it of responsibility that we have to do in getting that. And I think that's a very dangerous trap. Because what Paul's about to give us in Romans chapter 12 are the terms and conditions. 
I, I don't know how else to get it. This is just, at least in America, I don't know how it is. You know, I've, we've got people who are downloading these podcasts from all over the world. And I don't know, I can't speak to what things are like, you know, in other places in Canada and, and, and um, you know, Ecuador and in places all over the world, Germany, that are downloading messages. I can't speak to what things are like. All I can speak to is what I see in the American church and in the, the human nature of man. And the human nature of man and the American church, I call it a free microwave society. We want things um, quick. We don't care what, it, what, what um, adverse health effects are there. We want it quick. We want it easy. And we want it now. And we don't want it to cost us hardly anything. But that's not the cross. And we're going to touch on that here in just a little bit. And I think it's fascinating. I went and I did a, a brief little research on this. In America, um, in one year, the weight loss industry, supplemental industry, Americans spend approximately $2.1 billion. Not million, billion. $2.1 billion for an easy, quick fix pill. That's advertised to them to say, just take this pill and you'll lose weight. You don't have to do any exercise. You don't have to do any diets. You don't have to change what you eat, change anything. All you got to do is just take this pill and all the blessings can be yours. All the benefits without the work can be yours if you will only just hand over your 1995 or some other outrageous amount of money, even more than that, and we'll give you the results without the effort. And I think that that concept is now being put into the church. You can have all the blessings of God and you don't have to repent. And it's to different degrees from different pulpits. But it's still the same thing. And that's the society we're in. And for me, over the last handful of chapters that Paul's been talking about, there's been a whole lot of, of the, the blessings and the gifts and the plan that God has forth in Christ and the things that He has given to us in Christ and has redeemed and and. And a lot of people see it as if we don't have a responsibility to play in this. Romans 12 is that responsibility. You know, I was um, thinking about this situation that happened a number of years ago where this, this girl was involved in a, in a bad relationship. And she was having premarital um, Relations with a guy, and I'm going to keep this, you know, PG because I don't know who all listens to these podcasts. Um, <clears throat> and so, I was having some marital relate or some premarital relations with this guy. Essentially, was living in sin. And, and after she had kind of repented and had come back into our fellowship and had kind of talked to us, and we were able to talk to her and kind of see where she was at, and, um, and she was kind of restored unto the fellowship. She was telling us this one time in which they had just gotten done having those premarital relations. And afterwards, the guy sat on the edge of the bed with her and they prayed. And the prayer wasn't, Father, we have sinned. We've done something wrong. Please forgive us. Um, give us the strength not to do this again. Here was the prayer. Don't let her get pregnant. And I don't know of a more indicative statement in that situation to describe much of the church today and what we're about to read. Because Romans chapter 12, verse 1, it starts out, I appeal to you therefore. 
And this is a really important therefore, because right before, like every one of them are important, but this is a really important one because he just talked about the things that have been given to us that God has bestowed upon us through the person of Jesus Christ. And it says, look, it's not something that he's looking for you to be able to come to him and ever really be able to fully repay the gift that he's given. But he says, but I do expect you to spend the entirety of your life trying. And he says, for from him and through him and to him are all things. Because he has orchestrated and done this through Christ and has offered up this grace and this faith and this salvation and the blessings there within. To undeserving sinners who didn't do anything worthy of deserving this to be offered to us. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, by the mercies of God. Here's what he says. To present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. And then he says, which is your spiritual worship, or you could say, which is your reasonable service or your rational service. It says it only makes sense, right? Because God did not spare his only son, but instead allowed him to be put up and brutally murdered on a cross as a sinless man for the sake of sinners. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. It's only your reasonable service to spend the rest of your life saying, Father, I am not worthy. I am simply just your servant. I will do all that I've commanded, as Luke 17 chapter, or Luke chapter 17, verse 10 says. We've only done what was our duty. We'll spend the rest of our life giving our life back to you because of what you have done and accomplished on our behalf. It is simply my spiritual act of worship. And because of the terminology of this passage, let me just tell you this. It is impossible for you to go into a church service and lift your hands up in song and in praise and worship the King of Kings when you are holding back your body from being in His hands. Now what does this look like for us today? Well, let me tell you, this is, this is probably the one passage that stood out the most to us before me and Jen decided that her womb was not ours to control. I can't tell you, Jen, she was just coming back from Walmart today. And she picked me and Corbin up and, um, and she was telling me, you know, every time I go, somebody always makes a comment about how much food I get. And so this, this little old lady came up to her and she goes, ma'am, did you have to take out a small loan to get all this food? And she said, well, no, I didn't. I didn't have to take out a small loan. God always provides. But I do have 11 children at home. And she's like, you have 11 children? Well, I guess there's nothing you can do about it now. <laughs> I was like, how, how, how sickening is that? And Jen just responded. She says, well, I believe that they're a blessing from the Lord. And she said, you know what? You're right. You have a blessed day. And she goes to go check out the food at the register and there's this guy that, that says something to her similar and she says that she has 11 kids and, and he's like, do you regret your decision to do that? And she's like, not a day goes by that I ever regret bringing life into this world. 
And yet everywhere that I look, I see men and women who think that the womb is something that they should be able to control. This is a text that says, because of what God has done for you in not sparing the body of his son for you, who are you to look back and respond to me and say, you get to control your body against my will? Because this is a very serious thing, and I could do an entire podcast message on this one premise. But I'm going to ask you that question one more time. If God did not spare his own son and the body of his son for you and I, then who are you to look back at him and say, Lord, I've had my one or two kids. I've made my contribution. I'm done. I'm going to withhold my body from you to open and close the womb as you see fit. You know, you look in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. I find it fascinating because here's what he says about women in terms of childbearing, or the word could be signified as child rearing, raising up children. It says, yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Now, this verse always gives a lot of people problems because we've been so conditioned to just think that it's solely by grace through faith. And I've talked about this at length. You could even go back to verse 22, chapter 11. We think it's solely grace through faith. Well, that's what brings us into this salvation in order to get us saved from being unsaved. But in order to keep us in that position, there are requirements that we have to meet This is why James 2 says what it does when it says you see that a person is not justified by faith alone, but by works. You see, I'm brought into a standing of being justified with God, but I'm remaining in that standing and will be justified in the end before God when I supplement works to that faith to keep that faith strong. And I'm not going to go into all of it because I've gone into it in depth on several of the topics that we've gone over, specifically when I went over James chapter 2 in one of my podcasts. But here's the deal. Here's why I'm bringing this up. We've been conditioned to think that it doesn't require anything of us. And it goes into what I was talking about previously about how we want the promises of God without the process. That we want the blessings of God, the benefits of God without the responsibility, the terms, and the conditions of the cross. So we think that we can follow Jesus without having to actually deny ourselves and put uh, ourselves on that cross daily, as Luke 9.23 talks on. And, and it doesn't get much more clear than this. Well, I think that a man who offers up his body to be burned at the stake because of the faith, because of his testimony in Jesus Christ, is I could go through countless examples all throughout the last 2,000 years of men who have chosen To do that very thing for the sake of their king. And there's been women who have done the same thing. But I think one of the most practical things that is being overshadowed and overlooked today is a woman who chooses to deny God her body. And why is this so important? Because our our commission in this life is to make disciples. To take the life from God that he has bestowed to us and then transfer that into another individual so that life can be multiplied. 
That's what discipleship is. It's taking the life of God and multiplying that life. Well, isn't it fascinating? In the very, very beginning, when God joined a man and a woman, it says, what was that one God looking for? Malachi tells us, godly offspring. What was God looking for when he brought man and woman together? He says, be fruitful and multiply. I want you to take the life that I've joined you together for and multiply that life. It's discipleship. And yet here we are in families, we think we get to negotiate the terms with God who gave His only Son and did not spare the body of His Son and yet we look at Him and say, oh, I've had my two, boy and a girl, I'm through. Don't ask anything of me, God, because I'm not going to do it. They'll interfere with the life I want to live. Oh my goodness, how heavenly hypocritical that is. And I say heavenly because the heavenly example has been given to us in Christ. And here we are being hypocrites of that example out, lived out here on earth. We've been conditioned unto the wrong pattern. In Exodus 25 verse 40, I, f- I find it fascinating again that God tells Moses, he says, I want you to build everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountaintop. Well, there was a pattern that was shown to us. On that cross. And this is why Hebrews 12, 1-2 talks about it where it says that we must um, lay aside every sin and weight which clings so closely. Looking to Jesus. To run this race with endurance. Looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross and despised the shame. And is now seated at the right hand of the Father. He says, he is your example of not sparing your body for the benefit of others. But yet men and women out there are trying to negotiate the terms and say, hey, we only want two. We only want three. We're not going to let the Lord have access into the womb. And by so doing, you miss the blessings that God might want to give to you. Because he won't bless you against your will. Once I had a guy come up to us. And we were all seated. Um, took up an entire row. There's like 11, 12, 13 seats that were there. And we had a little um, stroller with us. And we were waiting on a baptism service to start. And this guy walked up to us and he was like, Man, you really took that, um, that be fruitful and multiply seriously, didn't you? And I didn't know this guy really at the time. And so I was just like, Yeah, you know, kind of laughed about it. And after he left, you know, it's one of those moments where you think about what you should say after the fact. I was like, shouldn't we take every charge of God seriously? Like, well, what's happened to us in America where we think that we get to negotiate those terms and we don't have to take his do's and do not seriously? This is not a request by Paul. He says, I'm appealing to you. Present your body. It's not, hey, man, um, I, I'm going to ask you, like, hey, just do your best. But if it doesn't really work out, then then you don't really have to. No, Paul says... Do it. It's a charge. Present your body as a living sacrifice. I had somebody tell me one time, the, the thing about living sacrifices is that they're able to crawl off the altar. And I can't tell you how many women have crawled off that altar simply because it was hard. Well, praise God that Jesus didn't crawl off the cross. Like I said, I could talk all day about this one because this comes down... Into the free will of man opposing the will of God. 
That's what it is. And I try to be patient with people. But the more that I look out there, the more that I see the rebellion and just the hardened heart to the things of God. And is it any surprise that we're like this in the church today? I mean, is, is it really any surprise? Because Jesus even talks about it. He says there's going to come a time where women, where people are going to say, blessed are the breasts that never nursed and the wombs that never bore. He prophesied it. He said there's going to come a time where people are going to say, behold, children are not a blessing of the Lord. Actually being barren is the blessing. And the fascinating thing is, is that in the Old Testament, they considered it a curse when a woman was barren and blessed when she gave birth. You see how things have flipped? All because mankind wants to have the blessings and benefits without the responsibility. So we say things like, God, don't let her get pregnant. Thanks for all the blessing. Thanks for all the good things. Thanks for all the warm, fuzzy feel-goods. But man, I hope she doesn't get pregnant. So that could be just a podcast in and of itself. But we're going to keep going. He says in verse 2, here's another do not. Do not be conformed to this world. That, that word for conformed goes back into what I was talking about. It's that to pattern oneself after. It's like if you're a seamstress and you have a, a pattern to cut out the fabric, you put that fabric down with the pattern on top of it, you pin it up, and then you cut it out. You're conforming yourself to the world. I don't know of how, what other um, way that many people are conforming themselves into the, to the world than not presenting their body as a living sacrifice unto God. That's not just isolated to women. That's men and women. It doesn't matter what it is. Your body belongs to Him. Your life belongs to Him. As 1 Corinthians 7 talks about where it says that you were bought with a price to do not become bondservants of men. And yet I look out there all the time and I see men slaves to their jobs. Oh, well, I can't make it to church, pastor. I can't make it to, to fellowship, pastor. I can't be committed to this, pastor, because my job has ownership of me instead of Christ. We know what Matthew 6 says. There is no middle ground between it. Matthew 6.24 says that you can only serve God or the paycheck. You cannot have two masters. That's impossible. You cannot be a slave to your job and a slave unto Christ. Impossible, Jesus says. You're a slave to one or the other. So which one are you a slave to? What is the fruit of your life? What are you um, pushing aside in order to push more onto your plate? Are you pushing more of the world aside? Pushing that off of the table in order to put more of Christ on your plate? Or are you pushing more of Christ off to the side and somehow justifying it in order to put more of the world on your plate? Well, let me just tell you, you don't get both. Jesus calls that being lukewarm. James calls it being double-minded. And you know what Jesus said he was going to do to the lukewarm? Man, it is only God's mercy, which I will say will run out eventually. It is only God's mercy that he hasn't spit out many people today. 
He says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. Metamorpho is the Greek word that's used here. It's the same word that's used on the Mount of Transfiguration, where it says that Jesus was transformed brilliantly white. His clothes as white as what bleach couldn't even get him. He was transformed. And he says, by the renewal of your mind. Let me just tell you, your body is going to go where your mind tells it. And oftentimes, your mind is going to go where your heart tells it. This is why Luke 12, 34 says, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Let me just tell you, I can tell you where your true treasure is based off of the fruit of your life. I can tell you in many, many degrees, in many ways, that if if you're a woman who refuses to give her womb to the Lord and up to His control, at least in that parameter and in that capacity you love yourself more than you love Jesus if you're unwilling to spend time in the word because your job has you too busy and you're constantly putting Christ off of the table I'm just going to tell you I'm going to be blunt many people out there are going to be blunt with you I'm going to be blunt if you want a podcast channel where the dude's going to be preaching and he's going to be blunt with you this is the one you might not like it. It's going to step on your toes some, but this is the one. I want to tell you, if that's what you're doing, then you're pushing Christ off the plate. You're putting more world on the plate. You love the world more than you love Jesus. 1 John chapter 2, 15-17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. For the one who loves the world, the pride of the, of, of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and, the, and the, the, I forget what the order is. Pride and possessions, the lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, is not from the world. I'm sorry, is not from God, but is of the world. Don't be conformed to the pattern of this world. Build everything that was shown to you on the cross, through the cross, and for the glory of God. He says that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. I love this part because for one, the will of God... Is very simple. First Thessalonians 4, 3-8 talks about it. It says it's your sanctification or your holiness, which, let me just tell you, does not come to fruition unless you present yourself as an obedient slave unto righteousness. That's what Romans 6 tells us. Because presenting yourself as an obedient slave unto righteousness leads to sanctification, which leads to eternal life. That's what the rundown goes in Romans chapter 6. So if you're not willing to present your body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, you cannot be sanctified. It's impossible. He will not sanctify you until you get out of your own way and choose to get into His. And I find it interesting because in Malachi chapter 1, 6-9, I think there's a lot of people that are similar to the Jews that Malachi is speaking to right now. He says, A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? This is God speaking. And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name. He says, look, if I'm the father, if I'm the master, then where is my honor? Why are you not showing me that I have value in your life? If I am your Lord, then why is it so hard for me to get you to do what I've asked you to do? Present your bodies a living sacrifice. No, I can't do that. Then how are you honoring me? How is it that you're fearing me? Priests. Which by the way, that's a message to us too today. Because First Peter chapter 2 says we are the royal priesthood as the church. 
But here's the thing. Many of you might be even listening to this and saying, well, how are we dishonoring him? How are we not showing him um, the fear that he's worthy of? Well, listen to what they say. But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals as sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor? Says the Lord of hosts. Here's essentially what God's saying. You're offering me the, the, the leftovers. You're offering me the secondary and the third choice things of your life instead of giving me the first fruits, instead of giving me it all. It's not me that you honor. It's not me that you fear. You honor yourself and you fear losing the things you love more than me. Man, let that sink in. You know, in the, in the law... When sacrifices were commanded of God, he says, I want pure and unblemished. And if they ever tried to give him the, the impure and the blemished, there was consequences. Let me just tell you, please don't offer the secondary things to God and think that you're pleasing to him. Little Philippians 1, 9 through 10 says, it's what it talks about in the second Peter chapter 3, verse 14, when he says that... Um, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people are you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the Lord? And then he goes in and he says, so be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish. You are supposed to be that pure and unblemished lamb presented unto God. But when you refuse to present your body as a living sacrifice, and when you refuse to not be conformed to the patterns of this world and to be transformed by the renewing of your mind, when you refuse to renew that mind into the image of Christ, then you're exactly that, an impure and a blemished sacrifice. And God says, it is not acceptable to me. That's what Romans 12 is teaching here, guys. Man, you, you can... All that candy that the pastors feed you from the pulpit that just talk about that you're just you're the righteousness of Christ and nothing you do or don't do ever changes that. Let me just tell you, that's that's heresy. I think some well-meaning people who might have uh, might have been deceived themselves by somebody else, or maybe they were deceived because they read a certain chapter and a verse and they thought that that's what it said, and so they're running with it. But it's not the truth of the word. It's way too much evidence to say otherwise. He goes on, he says, For by the grace given me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For the sake of time, because I spent way too much, or not way too much, I think that we spent just, as, just what we were supposed to in those first two verses. But in this one, let me just kind of detail what this is talking about. If you read it in the King James, it's going to kind of give a slightly different concept that's being brought here. But in Romans chapter 12, he goes this. He says, For I say through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. God has given us access unto this measure of faith. And in what we end up doing with that will determine how much faith we end up with. You ever hear the parable of the talents? 
That there was this access under these talents that to one God gave five, to one God gave two, to one God gave one. And based off of what these men did with that, determined how much more they got. How did they work with the faith that was given to them? God has given us access to immeasurable faith, Ephesians chapter 1 says. That's not just for the select few, that's for everybody. So when it says, according to the measure of faith that God has assigned, that is not appropriated to each individual person. It is meaning that we have been given this access unto immeasurable faith. That God says, if you invest that faith and choose to walk by faith, then I will give you substantially more because it's mine to give. It's mine to bless with. And as Luke 16.10 talks about, the one who is dishonest in, in the little is dishonest in much. And the one who is faithful in little is faithful in much. God will give greater faith to those who choose to live out the faith that they're given. We're reading a book, George Mueller, of his, um, of his life right now. And I want to tell you, somebody who progressed in the faith that he had was George Mueller. God gave him access unto this faith and he began to walk in it blindly, but all consuming trust in his God. And it multiplied and multiplied and multiplied for by the time that he was living his last, um, taking his last breath of life, the faith that that man had was immensely different than what he started with. All because he chose to walk in faith. And God grew it. But if you choose to not walk in that faith, if you choose to just sit on it, man, I would encourage you to go read Matthew 25 about the parable of the talent. Because you know what? It doesn't end well for that one guy. The guy that was given the gift from God. The guy that was given that faith. The guy that was given access unto this faith. He didn't invest it. He didn't walk in it. He just chose to sit on it and be like, thank you, Jesus. I'll praise your name on Sundays, but I'm going to go live my own life. Go read about what happened to him. He says, For as as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ. This is um, essentially coming on the heels of everything he talked about with the Jews and the Gentiles. About how in Christ there is no distinction between the Jew and the Gentile, and, and God's salvation has been offered to both. It's not one or the other, it's both. And in Christ there is no Jew nor Gentile, for we are all children of God. And that's why he says we are all one body, and we might have different members, and we might have different functions, but we are all still one in Him. And individually members of one another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. He says, if prophecy in proportion... To our faith. Notice whose faith it is now. That once God has given you that gift, He then expects you to utilize that gift. It becomes yours to then walk in. And God owns more to be able to give you more. But He's given you a portion of that faith and given you access unto the immeasurable faith, the riches that we have in Christ, as Ephesians 1 again details. And when we choose to take ownership of that faith and walk in that faith, He says, I will multiply the gift that I've given to you. See, this is the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament is because the Old Testament was physical gifts. 
is the one who's faithful will get riches and honor and, and power and prestige and, and all these various things like Solomon and all these rich dudes in the past who were faithful men of God and God blessed them with material possessions. In the New Testament, you won't find that concept. What you do find is when we're faithful, God blesses us with the spiritual blessings. It's not just monetarily as this whole health, wealth, prosperity, heresy that's out there today. Because I'm sorry, Jesus himself, our example, the founder of our faith and set the bar at the highest example, which is what the words mean. He says, now I want you to go and imitate me. As Paul says twice in 1 Corinthians, imitate me as I imitate Christ. The founder of our faith wasn't wealthy on this earth, but he most certainly was in heaven. He says, in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. He's just basically telling them, whatever your niche is in the body, do it and do it well. Rely upon the grace that God has given to you and extended to you through Jesus Christ, the divine influence of heaven in your life to allow you to achieve that which formerly was impossible in and of yourself. Go and do it well. If you're going to give, give generously. If you're going to lead, then lead zealously. If you're going to teach, man, you better teach with all your might. 2 Corinthians 8.12 says this, For if the readiness is there, it's acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. Let me just tell you, if you don't have the money to give generously, that's, that's okay. That's okay. You might have $100 to your name. And you might have the inability to give thousands. God hasn't made that your niche. And that's okay. You might have 11 children. To where you don't have the ability to go out there and grab an omer. And have a whole lot left over. Point is, is you have a niche. It might not be being able to give generously, though we still are commanded to give. Maybe your niche is leading and doing it zealously and being the example of leadership to other people. I don't know what to tell you on that. All I know is that it's acceptable to God, not according to what you don't have, but what you do. And if you have a lot of wisdom of the word, but you're out there sitting on it and not sharing it, or you're not being passionate in in declaring it, then you're not sharing or teaching well. So whatever your niche is, don't be discouraged because maybe you want your niche to be something else, but God hasn't made that. Stay in your lane. Stay in your post. Get on the wall that God's told you to get on. And go and do it with the grace of God that He will amply supply to you in order to accomplish His will. In verse 9, I'm just going to kind of run through these and I'm going to camp out on a couple topics, but it really is kind of self-explanatory in this, guys. This is the mark of, of true Christianity, of a true Christ follower, one who is following Jesus Christ and the example that He gave to us. This is what it looks like. These are the terms and the conditions. We don't get to negotiate this. 
This is what God has set forth to say, this is what it looks like to follow my son, and only those who follow my son will find the eternal life in the end. So this is really important, because everything that we're going to talk about is the exact image of Christ on the cross. And this is why 1 Corinthians 1.18 is such a dear passage, Jimmy, when it says that the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It is the most beautiful display that we have ever seen for those of us who are in love with Jesus Christ. And it's the thing that we seek to emulate the most on an everyday basis. Primarily, presenting our lives our bodies, our hearts, our minds as a living sacrifice unto God. He says, let love be genuine. Don't be insincere. Don't be ingenuine in your love towards the brethren or towards the world, but primarily towards the brethren. He says, abhor what is evil. It's the Greek word apostugeo, and it basically means to detest and utterly um, dislike. It's not a word that's like, oh, some of the evil that's going on in the world today. Well, you know, it, yeah, it kind of frustrates me, but oh well, you know. No, it's like a, a hatred for evil. Abhor what is evil. Don't tolerate it. Don't just sit there and condone it and be like, well, they're just going to be sinners. That's just who they are, so we'll just let them sin. Was that John the Baptist? Was that his approach to Herod? When Herod, this worldly man who was having his brother's wife, did he just be like, well, I mean, he's not really one of us, so we'll just let him do it because we can't judge the world, right? And maybe if you're somewhat of a Bible scholar, you have a little knowledge, maybe you're even quoting to me 1 Corinthians 5 right now. Well, let me just tell you, 1 Corinthians 5 isn't about calling out sin in others. 1 Corinthians 5 meaning of the world. 1 Corinthians 5 is about bringing condemnation upon people, a disciplinary action in the church, within the church for sins. That's why he says, you aren't supposed to judge the world. You judge the one who, who claims or professes that they are a Christian. And what was the judgment? It wasn't just calling out their sin. It was kicking them out of the church. It was casting them out to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that their spirit may be saved on that last day. Somebody who claimed to be a believer but was walking in arrogant sin, choosing to not maybe give their bodies a living sacrifice unto God. And somebody approaches them and they say, nope, not going to do that. And you go through the process. You're trying to be patient with them and they say, no, I'm not going to do it. It says you deliver this man unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh. That's what we don't do to the world. But call out their sin, you better darn well understand that we call out their sin. We better not be able to tolerate the evil that is done out there that put Christ on the cross. Whether in ourselves or in others. He says, hold fast to what is good. Love one another. With brotherly affection, that word brotherly affection is Philadelphia. It's love of the brethren or a fraternal love that are born of the spirit or of the same womb. He's commanding them that as the church, I want you to love one another with this brotherly affection of being of the same womb. Like you're part of a family because you know what? You are. It's what 1 Timothy 5.8 says. It's what 
I think it's Ephesians 2.19. It's what Galatians 6, 7-10 talks about. Do good to all, but especially the household of faith. We are the household of God. If you don't love your earthly family, then that's bad. But if you don't love your heavenly family, then you're worse than an unbeliever, is what 1 Timothy 5.8 says. The misunderstood passage by many today, thinking that it's referencing your earthly family. It ain't referencing that. It is referencing that if you do not love your earthly family, then that is bad. But if you don't love the family of God by whom you were purchased through into the blood of Christ to have a fraternal bond of being born of the Spirit, if you don't love them, if you don't honor them, then you're worse than an infidel or an unbeliever. He says, do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Be patient, I'm sorry, serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. When you're suffering and you have tribulation, be patient and wait for the Lord. He will come. This is what First Peter 5, 5 through 9, I believe is what the, the I think it's through 9, talks about. When he says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion to seek someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by the brethren, by the brethren all throughout the world. He says, resist him. It's your job to do it. God won't do it for you. You have to do it. You have to man up. You have to own up. Be like men, 1 Corinthians 16 tells us. And stand firm in the faith. He says, be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. You know, one of my favorite passages on this topic is in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And I think it's what a great example it is to contribute to the needs of the saints of how we should be on an everyday basis. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. Remember, grace is not unmerited favor. Grace is the divine influence of heaven in the heart of man. It is something which God has enabled us and equipped us to do something that we are otherwise incapable of doing. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, notice the terminology here, for in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected. We didn't expect them to give beyond their means. It wasn't this expectation, but man, what a blessed testimony to be able to say that these people gave their last two copper coins. As Jesus talked about the woman who gave all she had to live on. I don't think Jesus was expecting her to give those last two copper coins, but he most certainly didn't tell her, put it back in your pocket. He just blessed her for it. And I love how it talks about in an extreme, a severe test of affliction and extreme poverty, they gave a wealth of generosity to supply the needs of the saints. He goes on... In the passage, I think that we as Americans would do really well to listen to. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Now, this is a fascinating thing because the word that's used here, humas, for you, is a plural form of this word. So he's not, he's not individualizing this. It's like when somebody persecutes you individually, you need to bless them and don't curse them. It's like 
when somebody is attacking you as a church, bless them and do not curse them. I think it's a fascinating concept because, you know, all over the world we have churches that are out there that are under constant threat of being sieged. Of people coming in with guns possibly and shooting them up. It's, it's a constant threat in many places of the world. And he says, if they do, and don't repay evil for evil. Don't be like them. You know, or you should, you know where you're going to spend eternity. You know the example that while you were a sinner, Christ died for you. And don't go out there and be a, a heavenly hypocrite. In which you have the heavenly example in Christ on that cross who did not forsake his own body, but he gave it willingly for you and for me. He said, you know what? My body belongs to whoever needs it. And if that means that I have to die for the sake of sinners, then so be it. Man, listen to what I am saying. Because so often today, <clears throat> we are the ones who are out there saying, Oh man, you break, you break into my house, I will shoot you. How the heck is that upholding the cross? I was helping a lady move a shed one time and there was this guy that had the sign on his um, front, on his fence as you came in. It said, um, trespassers will be shot. Survivors will be shot again. And I'm like, you call yourself a Christian? I mean, you're a deacon in the church of a local church in this area and you call yourself a Christian, a Christ follower. And you say that it's okay for you to take another person's life to spare your own? How is that the cross of Christ who gave his life to spare yours? Though you didn't even deserve it that while you were as a sinner, Christ died for you. How's that love? How is that imagery of Christ? How is that emulating the cross? He says, if somebody's coming to attack you, if somebody's coming to curse you, if somebody's persecuting you, which by the way, 2 Timothy 3.12 says that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You can't get away from it. There will be people who are going to hate you. John 15 says it. Jesus tells us in the tail end of John 15 that if you are of the world, the world will love you as its own. But because I chose you out of the world and I called you to walk in a way that is befitting the cross of Jesus Christ, the world's going to hate you. If they did it to me, they'll do it to you. But here's how I want you to respond. Bless them. Do not retaliate. Do not try to preserve your own life. You continue to entrust yourself to him who judges justly, as we're going to read in 1 Peter chapter 2. We can't get around this because you can't get around the cross. You can try to sidestep the cross and think in some way, some twisted way, shape, or form that you're actually doing what God would want you to do because maybe in the Old Testament that's what they did. Let me just tell you, if you want to live under the Old Testament, go for it. Because here's the problem. You can't sin one time. Because God has now done away with the sacrifices of the old because he's now prepared a body for us as Hebrews 10, 1-14 tells us. And it's only that blood that he'll look upon. He will not look upon the blood of bulls and goats. So if you want to go live under the Old Testament, you want to go be some of those guys and go shoot them up, you can go out into battle, you can go say, hey, yeah, for the Lord, Jehovah, we're going to go out there and we're going to slaughter these people, then go for it. But you're going to have to keep every aspect of that law. And if you mess up one time, hell is the only thing that awaits you. But if you want to live under the new covenant, then these are the terms and conditions. 
Bless those who persecute you. Do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. And then check this out. Because I, I love 1 Corinthians 1.10. 1 Corinthians is one of my favorite ones because you learn what to do by what they didn't do. So like in Paul's First and Second Corinthians, he's rebuking them left and right, and it's like, oh, okay, glad it happened to them, not necessarily me. I need to learn what to do by seeing with the Corinthians what not to do. And here's what he says in First Corinthians one ten. When he talked about this, live in harmony with all. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So this is an authoritative statement. This is not something he's suggesting. This is not something that he's saying. It would be my preference. He says, I am declaring this and I'm commanding this by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is an authoritative term in Scripture. He says that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. He says, if you've got differences of opinion, you better work it out. You better talk about it. You better go to the text. Go figure it out. I want you to be united of the same mind and I want you all to agree on truth. That's the goal. That's the aim. It's not okay to just agree to disagree and then just leave it at that. You got to talk about this stuff. That's a charge of Jesus unto the church. And he goes on, he says, Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly, or the footnote in my Bible says, or give yourself unto lowly tasks. Be a servant. Even if you're a leader, be a servant leader. Who's willing to go clean the toilets? Who's willing to go scrub the floor with the toothbrush if needs be? You go do those humble tasks. And you make sure nobody even sees you doing it. Because that's pleasing to the Lord. And then check this out. Never be wise in your own sight. Why would he throw that in there? Because it's very easy to fall victim to this. To be wise in our own sight. Well, I don't think that it's right that if somebody's coming in with a gun and they want to shoot me or they want to take something that belongs to me, that I don't have the right to be able to defend myself and to be able to do what, um, what I should be able to do. And even if I have to take their life, then I should be able to take their life. Well, let's look at what the Word says. Because I'm trying to find this passage... In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 32. Check this out. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, this means after you were saved, you endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those who treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you've joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. And somebody might say, well, that's just talking about... Uh, material possessions. Let me just tell you, it's not just talking about that. It's also talking about your body. Didn't we just say, present your body as a living sacrifice? Holy and acceptable unto God? That means you give your body up just as Jesus gave His up for you. The problem in the church today is that we oftentimes like to receive the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness of God, but we don't want to be those who extend it. We love the fact that Jesus died for us while we were sinners. But if somebody's going to come into our presence as a sinner, we're going to make sure they get what they deserve. That's why it's impossible, impossible to be a full, devoted follower of Jesus Christ and uphold the concept of justice. It's impossible. Jesus says, if you live by the sword, guess what? You're going to die by the sword. This new covenant that I've got, it flipped justice on its head that a sinless man died for sin, sinful people. 
something to chew on. There's a lot of people who are deceived into this. And I, I'm not saying that just because maybe you are upholding a concept of justice that you're not saved or that God's just angry with you. What I am telling you is that now you're accountable to it. You're accountable to what God is going to say in His Word through the person of Jesus Christ and the example of the cross. And maybe you weren't before. So I'm not bringing condemnation on anybody. I'm not trying to bring a sense of just severe judgment on people to make you feel ashamed. I'm trying to admonish in truth and in the reflection of the cross. That passage in Hebrews chapter 10 starting in 32 joyfully accepted the plundering of your property that most certainly includes your body most certainly because you know you have a better one and an abiding one that means that the perishable cannot put on the imperishable it can't enter into heaven first Corinthians 15 talk, talks about flesh cannot enter we have an inheritance we have an imperishable body that God says it's waiting there in heaven for you so that when this body wears out, you get to put that on. And what does Paul say in Philippians 1? Isn't it better to, to die and to be with the Lord? So if God has allowed something to come into your life, and I'm not saying it's easy, but the cross wasn't easy. If He has allowed a situation to come to your life in which it's going to cost you your body to represent Him and to represent the cross, then so be it. You give your body as Christ gave it for you. And don't be wise in your own sight or in a worldly conformed pattern. The world might tell you, defend yourself. But you know what Luke 9, 23-24 says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and pick up his cross daily and follow after me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my name's sake will save it. If you're trying to preserve your life, But then maybe you actually haven't found the life of Christ. He goes on in chapter 12. And he says, repay no one evil for evil. Let me tell you, would taking somebody's life as a sinner be considered evil? I think so. Under this new covenant that we have in Christ, good is defined by God, not by us. There's a lot of things in the Old Testament that you could say were good. But I don't believe that they are now looked at as good. Korah and Dathan, because they said, we're all holy, we don't need to follow Moses' leadership. Moses goes to God and he's like, what am I supposed to do with these insubordinate guys that belong to Israel? And he says, I need you to separate from them, get away from them, because I'm going to destroy them in a way that nobody's ever seen before. And then men, women, children, their livestock, their possessions, everything got swallowed up alive. You could look at that and be like, see? But just because it happened under the old does not mean that it's the example of the cross and the new. Which one do we live under? The new or the old? It's your choice. I've already told you. It's your choice. You can have whichever one you want to. <laughs> one's going to lead to eternal life with hope and the other one's not. He says, never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as depends on you, live peaceably with all. Now check this out. He says this, beloved. So he's writing to the beloved, to the believers, the brethren, the Adelphos. He says, never avenge yourselves. Again, plural word here. 
It's not just individual. It's them as a church. He says, I don't care if somebody's coming to attack your best friend within the church. Never avenge yourselves. And you might think, oh, hold up a second. No, this is just referencing like just me. Like if somebody were to attack my wife, I'm going to avenge her. We have so many movies out there about this, don't we? And we think it's an honorable thing. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Which, by the way, this is a Greek word, ekstikeo. It means to vindicate, to retaliate, or to protect one from another. This is just what the Greek is stating. Did God seek to protect Christ from those who were coming against Him? Answer the question. Like if you're upset at me over Romans 12 as the marks of true Christianity, if you're upset at me, answer my question. Did God protect Jesus from the hands of sinners that were coming to put Him on a cross and kill Him? Well, well no. But, but Jesus was going to go be with God. My point exactly. Is it not better to die and be with the Lord? You see, you can go try to go protect your wife or your child by using physical force to go take another person's life in order to protect them. But you're missing the example of the cross and the gospel that we're supposed to be giving to other people. And I'm sure there's probably people who already at this point have turned this off. You might have been cussing at me through the entire time because you're like, this dude doesn't know what he's talking about. Man, all I'm doing is shooting scripture at you. You're the one who's rejecting what God states in His Word. Beloved, never avenge yourself. Now, there's a difference between pacifism and non-resistance. I would be a non-resistance guy. Pacifism is the guy that's going to help hold the little sign of like, hey, stop murdering people, stop doing this. And he's going to watch things happen right in front of him. And he's going to say, I'm a pacifist. I can't go and do anything about it. Sorry about your luck, man. I guess God didn't intervene. A non-resistance is the one who's going to say, you know what? There's that bully at school. And I'm walking home and I'm about to, I, I see that bully attacking this little kid. And there's this mob of people around them. A pacifist goes and joins the mob and is trying to tell people, hey guys, this is not right. They shouldn't be doing this. The non-resistance is the one who stands between the bully and between that kid. And he says, you know what? I don't know what he did to you, but whatever he did to you, put it on me. I'll take his beating. Say the kid's name's Little John. Little John, why don't you go? I'll take whatever this guy's going to get. And isn't that fascinating that that's the exact expression of the cross in which Jesus took what was rightfully ours? He stood in the gap. He stood between the judgment and the justice of God and the wrath and the sin of what God gives to sinners. And he says, I'm putting it on him. So he becomes the source of redemption and of reconciliation unto God. That's why Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father but through me. What a blessed opportunity we have to be able to be that example to other people. But I want to tell you, if your treasure is your life, or if you treasure your wife's life more than you treasure the cross, then you'll never be that example in the situation. Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. He says, to the contrary. 
vengeance and, and, and judgment and all these things of taking physical force if necessary, whatever. All that stuff belongs in God's court, not mine. He says to the contrary. The exact opposite. If your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you'll heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Isn't it fascinating that he uses those two analogies of eating and drinking? The very two things that Jesus says are the elements of communion. Whoever eats of my flesh and drinks of my blood will have eternal life. Think about it, guys. If your enemy's hungry, give him something to eat. Were we not enemies of God? Isn't that what we were walking as, as Ephesians 2 talks about? We were enemies of God. And so what did God do to his enemies? He gave us something to eat that would sustain us and actually give us life. If your enemy's thirsty, give him something to drink. I gave you the blood of my son so you could have forgiveness and redemption through his blood. In an eternal covenant, as Hebrews 13 puts it. You were my enemies, but I gave you my son. How can we ignore this and think that our enemies, we can retaliate? One of the sickening, most sickening things that I've ever heard was a guy that I was in fellowship with a long time ago when the things with Osama bin Laden were going on. And Americans finally caught him and they killed him. And on Facebook, he put on there, he said, I'm having a pork chop dinner and I'm having, I'm sure as a slight to Muslims, and I'm having some veggies and a salad and this in celebration of Osama bin Laden rotten in hell. That is one of the most sickening things I have ever heard in my entire Christian life. Because it came from a person who claimed the blood and the, the, the life of Christ. Of saying, thank you that while I was a sinner, you died for me. And I worship you for these things. But I'm not going to extend them because he deserved it. It's sickening. And it is not befitting a child of God who belongs to him through the person of Jesus Christ. I'm going to end with this. I know I'm at hour five, but... I'm going to end with this. 1 Peter chapter 2. Here's what he says. And it's starting in verse um, 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Did you just catch that? Those who are without justice. Those who aren't fair. He says, be subject to them. With all respect. He says, for this is a gracious thing when mindful of God... Of what God has done for you and poured out for you through the blood of Jesus Christ. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. He says that's a gracious thing in the sight of God. Because you have been given grace and now you're extending grace. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure? This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Why would you suffer for doing good? It's because the good is the expression of the cross. And the world cannot understand it, as 1 Corinthians 1.18 says. It's foolishness to them. He says, check this out. For to this you have been called. 
Because Christ also suffered for you. Man, I hope you're catching this. Because Christ also suffered for you, you sinner, you enemy of God, you one who is walking as an enemy of God, dead in your trespasses. God sent his son to be the bread and the, and the drink for you to find life. That even though you're an enemy, he offered you something to eat. Even though you're an enemy, he gave you something to drink so that you could find life. And even though it cost him the body of his son, he gave his son in order to redeem you when you came into him and subject yourself to him. You found the life of God. He says, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Vengeance is his, he will repay, it's not mine to give. He himself bore our sins in his body on that tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. And I just ask you, are you willing to be the example of Christ so that by your wounds somebody else could find healing? Are you willing to put yourself up on a cross even if it means your own life Knowing that you will have the eternal reward, even though you die, you live in Him. Are you willing to put yourself up under the cross for people who are coming and attacking you, antagonizing you, coming against you? Are you willing to speak truth to a person's life, even though you know they might retaliate and turn against you? Are you willing to entrust your soul to Him who judges justly? And to say, Lord, I trust you that whatever happens to me, will be for your glory. I'm coming soon. Do you live with that expectation? Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. I know that a lot of this is heavy and it's countercultural. It should be countercultural. We're not supposed to be conformed to the pattern of this world. We're supposed to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And let me just tell you, this chapter right here should renew your mind to transform you into the image of Christ. So through all this, everything that's here, everything in chapter 12 is an expression of the cross lived out through the example of Jesus Christ. Something the world had never seen before, something even God's people had never seen before. But this is what we've been called to. This is who we are. And if you're not okay with that, then you signed up on the wrong team. But there is no other team that wins the championship. So I would encourage you, go read the end of Luke 14. Because if you signed up before knowing what the cost was, then you're probably going to give up. And it won't end well for you. But these are the terms. And it's terms that we need to live by in order to find the blessing and the promises of God. As Hebrews 10.36 says, we have need of endurance so that after doing the will of God, we will receive what is promised. Cause and effect. It's the blessing and the gifts that God has extended to us through the person of Jesus Christ, but it requires something of us. And we need to be willing to meet that requirement. You all be blessed.